Hi, I'm Elke Mihira, and you're listening to Subject to Power. As I understand it, patriarchy at its heart is a male-led philosophy of conquest, domination, and destruction. And as patriarchy and its desire to dominate has spread over several millennia, it has developed ever more sophisticated technologies of destruction and ever more organized violence. These days, we're in a perpetual war between men across the world. But at no time in history did the contest for world domination reach as hysterical of a pitch as it did during the nuclear arms race of the Cold War. When the East, what was then USSR, and the West, America, were trying to outdo one another in who could amass the greatest, most threatening pile of nuclear weapons capable of mass death. For us, who lived through this time, and remember it clearly, regular people lived in everyday terror that our entire living planet would suddenly turn to dust and nuclear death at the push of a big red button by a big man in a land far away. My guest today, Anne Pettit, was a young mother and vegetable farmer in rural Wales during this period and found herself in much closer proximity to the nuclear threat than most. And in this episode, she's going to tell her story of how she was called into what became the largest all-women peace action of all time that helped to end the Cold War. So what, what do you want to know? What I would love to know is, you know, this is a very particular history that you were a big part of, and many people don't know the fear that a whole generation lived with during the Cold War and the nuclear mm -hmm. proliferation. And I just think this is just such an important historical episode and events that people need to know and be reminded of. So I'm very glad to talk to you. You wrote a book about your experience called Walking to Greenham. And a lot of my listeners probably won't even know what Greenham Commons or the Greenham Peace Camp was. So I kind of want to take it back to the beginning, like you had a very particular view of what was happening at Greenham Commons. So if you can sort of take it back to the beginning. Yeah. Well, in 1980, 1981, nobody had ever heard in this country, people had not heard of Greenham Common. But I heard of it because I belonged in a local anti-nuclear group where we discussed about nuclear weapons. And whether they posed more of a threat to us than a defence. Of course, they were sold to us and the public as a defence. But any idiot could see that since you can't actually use nuclear weapons in war, they can't really defend you because you can't use them because they're, they're, they're too big. It's like living on an ordinary street and having really magnificent car parked outside that can accelerate from naught to a thousand miles an hour in 20 seconds. It's not a lot of use. It might be impressive to look at. 
it's not a lot of use to you. You can't drive it. So nuclear weapons are a bit like that. They're just too big to be sensibly used if there is any sense in war, which I think sometimes there is. I'm, I'm not a pacifist, I suppose. So the idea that nuclear weapons were going to be stationed in this country, and these were the, they were coming in the form of cruise missiles. Cruise missiles are meant to be small. They're meant to be smaller. They're like little sort of big cigars that fit onto the back of a truck four at a time. Even given that, the warhead they take is about 10 times the size of the bomb that fell on Hiroshima. It's not very small. The dangerous thing, why I thought this was a very dangerous moment in the arms race, which seemed to be kind of acting under its own momentum and escalating out of control, and why I thought this was very dangerous, this particular development, this idea of bringing cruise missiles here, was that the way they were marketed for the public, if you like, the description was at times of international tension between East and West, that's between America and the USSR, when you've got nervousness on both sides, the cruise missiles would be distributed on the backs of lorries, trucks, around the British countryside so that they couldn't be seen. And they'd sort of hide in leafy woodland glades. That was the idea. And USSR High Command, which was a bunch of old guys called the Politburo, who were extremely paranoid and extremely deprived of sensible information, would see that the, the cruise missiles are being distributed from their satellites. They would see this was happening. And I was thinking, well, if you think it with their minds, you know, you imagine a conversation around the table. What do they do then? They don't know America's intentions. Hey, comrades, are they going to launch first? Should we do it first? What are they going to do? So, so it was incredible kind of absurd brinkmanship, really. It put these, the so-called enemy, you know, the, the USSR, it put them in a terrible quandary of what to do. And it seemed to me it brought a nuclear war much closer, made it much more of a possibility. And there didn't seem to be much awareness of this amongst the British public. And the organisations that were holding demonstrations, campaign for nuclear disarmament, about this, their demonstrations were really very traditional kind of big gatherings in London, in the capital city, and everybody makes speeches and that's it. And it didn't seem likely to me to really shake things up at all. I thought, well, what about, what about women? Have, what about if we just have a march to Greenham Common to highlight that this is the place where these cruise missiles, which could prove a threat to us, which could accidentally, as it were, launch a world war, a nuclear war. The question of why was it women sort of pops up, and I, I really don't know. I didn't give it much thought. I just thought it needs to be women. I talked to a lot of people in local anti-nuclear activists and so on, and everybody said, oh, I don't have time, I'm too busy. But then one woman I, I rang up, she said, that's a good idea, come around, we'll talk about it. And then there was two of us, and then 
another couple said, hey, it's a good idea, I'll help you with that. And there were four of us. And so that was enough to organise it. And the march happened in August 1981, so it was very fast. What was the route? It's 120 miles, I think, along the road, yeah. So it went from Cardiff over into England and then ended up at Greenham Common. It was about 10, 12 miles a day. We organised everything very carefully in advance. We thought about how we'd eat, who would cook food for us, where we'd sleep, who would find us a bed for the night. We slept a lot on floors in church halls and that kind of thing, community halls. We had a police escort because you have to, to go on the road. And we looked after everybody. <laughs> we made sure everybody was looked after or it would have been miserable. How did you recruit women to come? Yeah, that's interesting. Some of it was word of mouth, which is why we ended up with a lot of women who come from Wales, where the four of us lived. The four of us had moved to live in Wales from England. We were immigrants, really, to Wales. We were not kind of indigenous Welsh coming from long-standing families that roots here or anything. We were migrants. I think that's important because I think migrants tend to be innovative, stir things up, are less worried about what other people would think. And I think we were classic examples of migrant creativity, really, and migrant innovation. So we, we recruited from friends. I, I wanted women who were alarmed, as I was, by the arms race, but who were not kind of used to this kind of activism. I wanted to reach out beyond activist circles. I didn't want women who sort of been on marches and been on demonstrations for all their lives and for whom this was normal. I wanted women who were doing this for the first time, really. And I had a little article, a little advert about it in Cosmopolitan magazine with knitting patterns and cookery and stuff. And that brought in quite a lot of the kind of women I was hoping for. Because they were really wonderful. <laughs> How were you received? When we all met first night in Cardiff, we didn't know each other. And so I remember looking around and we were saying our names. We met in a Quaker meeting house room. We were saying our names to introduce ourselves. I mean, I was in a cold sweat with terror. I, I was so worried. I was unbelievable. We were only going to march to Greenham Common. Nobody had suggested that we do anything other than just go home when we got there. Because we thought marching to Greenham Common was quite enough to sort of alert people. You know, we'd get lots of publicity. It was really quite a big thing, we thought. This would get lots of publicity. Actually, no. I mean, nobody in the media wanted to know. They really weren't interested. They just thought this was so boring. In those days, you didn't have mobile phones. You had to go to a call box and you had to have money to put in to the call box. And I was pushing 10p pieces, coins into the call box every day, calling up editors. And they were saying, oh, God, I remember one, one newspaper editor, news editor saying, oh, God, peace. That's so boring. We did that last year. So we, we got about halfway along the march. We were all getting on like a house on fire. We had a great rapport. We were having a great time. But the point was not to have a great time. The point was to get a message out. And it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. 
so there was a suggestion by two of the four originals, Liney and Lynn, suggested that we should chain ourselves to the gates of green when we got there. Just like the suffragettes had chained themselves, they had chained themselves to the gates of parliament to bring attention to their cause. You know, they had, they had had to escalate and up the ante, so they said, we're going to have to do this. And this suggestion was put to the room and everybody talked about it and everybody going around the circle to begin with, they all said, oh, I don't know about this because uh, I've, you know, just going on this march was a big new thing for me. I'm not sure if I want to do this. It, it could cause violence even, you know, it'll involve the police. And one woman said, oh, dear, policemen's helmets will roll. You know, this could destroy public goodwill. This could really... This could really be disruptive. They were worried. They were very concerned. And they're saying, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, I, I hadn't signed up for this. And about halfway round, I remember Eunice sitting opposite me in this big circle. And she looked round and she said, well, she said, so what if policemen's helmets roll? What's worse than a nuclear war? I'll do it. And that kind of changed everything, really. It was one of those sort of really click kind of moments. That changed everything. And everybody after that, everybody after that said, yeah, she's right. We're going to have to do something. I'll support this. Mm. And that was what precipitated the events, really, because then when we arrived at Greenham, four women chained themselves up. Others brought tents in to support we were ignored again. We were ignored for two weeks. Can you tell me a little bit about what you saw when you got to Greenham? What did it look like? It's got chain link fence going around it, supported on concrete posts every 10 feet or so, and big gates. It's in, it's in the middle of a wood. It's a big aircraft runway. It was used in World War II as a runway. It's the longest runway in Europe or something, and so a lot of aircraft took off from it in World War II. And it was meant to go back into public ownership at the end of the war. It never did. It actually was meant to be a common for the use of the vehicle. And what's wonderful is that it now is again. <laughs> Uh, That's another story. <laughs> you change yourself to the fence. And in the book, you talk about kind of a declaration letter that you read. Oh, yes. I thought probably we should have some kind of statement of why we've done this. So I wrote it out on the table of the pub where we had a drink the night before we arrived. I wrote out a sort of why we're doing this declaration. Yeah, I have it here. So it says... We are a group of women from all over Britain who have walked 120 miles from Cardiff to deliver this letter to you. We fear for the future of all of our children and for the future of the living world, which is the basis of all life. We have undertaken this action because we believe that the nuclear arms race constitutes the greatest threat ever faced by the human race and our living planet. We have chosen Greenham Common as our destination because it is this base which our government has chosen for 96 cruise missiles to arrive in 1983. This decision has been made without our consent. The British people have never been consulted about our government defense policy. 
We know that the arrival of these hideous weapons will place our entire country in the position of a front line. We in Europe will not accept the sacrificial role offered us by our NATO allies. We will not be the victims of a war which is not of our own making. We wish neither to be initiators nor the target of a nuclear holocaust. We have had enough of our military and political leaders who have squandered vast sums of money and human resources on weapons of mass destruction, <clears throat> while we can hear in our hearts the millions of human beings throughout the world whose needs cry out to be met. We are implacably opposed to the sighting of cruise missiles in this country. We represent thousands of ordinary people who are opposed to these weapons, and we will use all our resources to prevent the sighting of these missiles here. We want the arms race to be brought to a halt now before it's too late to create a peaceful, stable world for our future generations. I love that declaration. <laughs> so, so do I, actually. <laughs> it says it all. Yeah. So what happened next? So you chained yourself to the fence, and then what happened? Well, that was ignored. First night, nothing happened. It was nice weather. We slept out under the stars. Local people then brought tents. After about two weeks of... I was toing and froing because I still had young children at home in Wales and a husband who needed to get back to work so that we had some money. The women who are older and the women who are younger and didn't have jobs and commitments, we held a meeting and they said, look, we can stay here, we can carry on. And that releases those of you who have commitments, who have children, who have jobs. You don't have to. We'll stay on. We'll stay here. And so the peace camp began to acquire a kind of permanence and grow, it began to attract some support, but not very much. At some point, it started getting more attention, yeah? Yes. After I spoke at the, the, the next big nuclear disarmament demonstration in Hyde Park, which was huge, 500,000 people or more, it was huge. By that time, I was really concerned that, you know, we needed somehow to get support, and it wasn't there because people didn't know about it. I managed to get a get the agreement of this huge rally with these important people speaking, and reluctantly they gave me a kind of two-minute slot. On these occasions, people don't really listen to the speakers because all the speakers are telling you what you already know. You know, so speaker after speaker, they were all talking about how awful, how horrific, how bad nuclear weapons are and how this has to be stopped and so on. And I thought, I've got to get their attention somehow because I need to tell them about Greenham Common. I need to tell them to go and support that as, as a physical way of making it difficult to bring cruise missiles. I need to tell them about Greenham Common. I need to get their attention. But I did get their attention without realising it because... In right in front of the stage, which was high up, there was a group of young kind of punk anarchists, all spiky hair and stuff. You know. And they were heckling every speaker. And they were shouting, anarchy, anarchy, blah, blah. You know, they were shouting and heckling at every speaker. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not having this. Uh, and so I 
I leant forward and I remember the guy was adjusting the microphone down to my short height. And I leant forward and I shouted as loud as I could. Are you not going fucking shut up? Because I've got something to say and I want everybody to hear it. And what I didn't know was that the microphone had just been switched on. So, so the whole vast crowd heard this. <laughs> it was an absolute shock. <laughs> they all stopped rustling their, rustling their crisp packets and eating their sandwiches. <laughs> it was like a pin drop silence fell. <laughs> So I, I, so I had attention. I was able to speak and tell them about Green and Colin. <laughs> it was just luck. I would have been ignored if they hadn't just switched the microphone. I mean, that was in October. Winter's coming on. I'm back home now. I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're not going to survive the winter. This isn't going to survive the winter. I'm going to have to go down and just sort of stop and we'll start again in the spring. You know, better weather. You're not going to get through the winter with a kind of vigil outside the gates of Green. You're not going to do it. And I drove down to Greenham Common. That was the first time I went down there after I'd spoken at the, the big rally. I went over to Helen and I said, look, Helen, look, winter's coming on. It's going to be difficult. There's a few women here now, but, you know, you're not going to want to be here on your own and all the rest of it. I know you say you don't mind, but... It's going to be hard. So I started my little kind of retreat with dignity speech, and and there was there were there were porter cabins there. So what are these doing here? What are these porter cabins doing? And she said, she said "Don't be so stupid, woman. This isn't the end. This is only the beginning." And <laughs> come and <laughs> come and have a look at the letters. I said, "What are you talking about, letters?" And I went into the porter cabin, and there were sacks at the end of this dry space. It was wet by then. It's very little dry space. And there were sacks and sacks and sacks of letters from people from all over the place. Oh, yes, I started reading the letters. Oh, God, there was a little heap of tears in the end. <laughs> letters from, a lot of them from older people who'd remembered World War Two and a lot of them from, from people all over saying, you've got to, you know, you're doing this for us. You've got to keep this up. Here's five pounds. Here's ten pounds. You know, please keep, you've got to stay there. There were tents. I thought, what are all these tents? I mean, it had worked, you know. There were actually a lot of women there. More and more women joined from that point yeah. forward. Yeah. 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 Can you tell us a little bit about what, women were doing in terms of actions and protests around the base at this time? Yeah, there were blockades of gate to stop the vehicle, the military vehicles going in and out. Because in the meantime, the story of the development of the base and even putting new kind of sewage pipes in for the expected arrival of American personnel to service cruise missiles, this was all carrying on smoothly um, but well, not smoothly, it was carrying on with disruptions. The disruptions were provided by the women who would lie down in trenches dug for sewage pipes and tie themselves up with, with knitting wool. A real puzzle for policemen who wanted to remove them because it was difficult to pick one up and she was all tied up with wool to the next one. And policemen aren't like nurses, they don't carry scissors on them. So they were sort of 
There's a lovely photograph somewhere of a policeman literally scratching his head. And there, there, you know, there were a lot of a lot of sit-downs in from the gate to stop vehicles and so on. There was also a thing called Cruise Watch after 1903 when the cruise missiles had been delivered and they were sort of going off as planned on the backs of trucks. they go down to Salisbury Plain where there was a British Army base and groups along that route would kind of phone each other up and get up in the middle of the night and go and sit down in front of the trucks. So that was subject to constant harassment and disruption. They broke in and they, um, they managed to get through the security, which was quite something, and occupied a sentry tower. They climbed up to the top of the sentry tower. And then the American soldier who was supposed to be on duty in that sentry tower they heard his footsteps coming up, you know. Now, this is a guy who's armed with a gun. So you've got the ludicrous image of Rebecca and a couple of other green women at the, at the top. He, cut, he bursts into the room and they say, it's all right. Don't be frightened because, <laughs> because he's, he's got the gun, you know. But they got arrested, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. There was the New Year's Day demonstration when the silos to hold the cruise missiles, a great big huge concrete sort of like low concrete hills really, had been constructed. And a lot of women broke through the fence. They had to climb over the fence. That was with these carpets to get over the barbed wire strands at the top. They then had to use carpets again to roll over the barbed wire in the rolls of razor wire inside and run like mad, run as fast as they could and get up on top of these silos and make sure someone was there to photograph them dancing round. It was a very good image. <laughs> if you Google Greenham Peace Camp, that's the image that comes that's up. The image. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant It's brilliant. Yes, it was yeah. New Year's Day. Yeah. Yeah were silhouettes of a ring of women dancing on top of this gigantic That's right. nuclear dome. Yes. I mean, what was wonderful was, was the, the, the weapons used were ridicule, song, song and dance, and weaving, embroidery. <laughs> you know, sort of women's crafts. <laughs> that came to the fore in the, the demonstration called Embrace the Base. Yeah, tell me about that. Grace the Base was 1982. Barbara Doris and another woman had been over to the Pentagon in America where the American anti-nuclear activists had held a demonstration in which they had surrounded and held hands around the Pentagon. And Barbara came back with this idea, why don't we try and hold hands around Green and Common? It's nine miles long of perimeter fence. So we got out, we, we got out tape measures. What do we measure arm tip to arm tip? And can we use belts and scarves to extend that? I think we worked out we needed 12,000 women to hold hands. So we thought, can we do it? Like, yeah, okay, we'll try and do it. We didn't have any money. So we, we publicized it by a chain letter. We had a chain letter inviting you to a demonstration to hold hands around Green Common and the date, I think it was. December the 10th, December the 10th, 1982, embrace the base. And I love that concept of embrace the base. 
actually surrounded with love, you know, embrace the mates. Wonderful slogan. We said, if you get this, make 10 copies and post it. Post it to 10 other women. I got hundreds of them in the post. <laughs> you know, these are whizzing around like mad. So the chain letter idea was a good concept. We had no idea how, whether or not it worked until the day. And that was wonderful. You had to go down the motorway about four hours. And as we got halfway down, there's a service station. The car park was full of coaches, absolutely jammed with coaches. At the service station, of course, you couldn't get a cup of tea. too many people. And <laughs> so then we carried on and, and there was a traffic jam. The motorway was completely blocked with um, coaches carrying women with gifts to put on the fence. We said, bring something to hang on the fence. And they did. And that was, that was really an extraordinary day when we finally got there. Because the whole fence was, was covered with the things that women had brought to hang on the fence to express what life meant to them. You know, obviously there were lots of photographs of babies and houses and and all the rest of it. But other things, there was a whole beautiful, beautiful China tea service pinned to the fence. I'd left, just left them. There were poems and books and just extraordinary things. I just spent all day walking around, looking at what was up there on the fence. The local very conservative, very reactionary people thought that this was absolutely disgraceful. <laughs> made a terrible mess of this lovely chain link fence <laughs> and and embroidery i mean i mean you know the whole huge areas would would be embroidered with and um, with ferns and leaves and kind of natural things incorporated into these complex embroideries because chain link you know lends itself to weaving and embroidery and i've seen images too of it and it looks like one big collage it's yeah. a huge tapestry a nine-mile-long, ten-foot-high tapestry. You know, there was hardly a gap in the in the the work. Amazing artwork, actually. Amazing. So you got twelve thousand people or more for the day. It was about thirty thousand. And so, what happened as this camp became permanent? Embrace the base was. It did have worldwide publicity and attention. So it kind of achieved what we'd set out to do, which was to draw attention to what was going to happen here and make people think about nuclear weapons and nuclear war and its implications. And then women stayed and made it essentially their home. So what did that look like? What was it like there at the height of everyone living there? Very messy. <laughs> Pretty messy. <laughs> well, uh, it, it went through phases because tents were soon replaced by benders, which was like pieces of polythene, plastic sheeting thrown over saplings that you'd bend down. And then the local authority, somebody said, you know, you've got to get rid of these women. And, and so a lot of heavy kind of reaction began to the peace camp and... A lot of bulldozers went in and the bulldoze, the 
the tents or the possessions or drag away cars or whatever, clear the camp, to no avail because they'd go back. They were very, very tough and there was a lot of hardship there. It was very difficult, very tough. And they went through some, some pretty awful, awful times, yeah. One woman was actually, a woman from around here, was actually killed or she was run over by an army vehicle on the road. The women that made the commitment to be there must have had quite the commitment to endure, like the bravery is just astounding. Yeah, yeah. You talk some in the book about that it was a leaderless movement, that it didn't Mm. have like one leader, but... I think it was just very fluid, very, very flowing, you know. Because the thing is, other camps were established. So there was the original one at what you might call the main gate, which became renamed Yellow Gate. And then there were other camps, which were called after the colors of rainbow, at other gates. So if you didn't like the atmosphere at Yellow Gate, you went off to Green Gate in the woods. Or you went round to Blue Gate, which was... Ironically, the one that was closest to these very snobbish, well-off local residents that had their big houses right opposite Bluegate. And Bluegate, I'm afraid, was the one where the very noisy lesbians who liked to drink all night went. And <laughs> that wasn't very nice for the residents. But then the point is, I mean, you know, nuclear war wouldn't have been very nice for them either. <laughs> Orange Gate, which was further on round, where women cooked steak and drank red wine. See, if I'd known about that, I would have gone there more often to stay with them. Another gate was where the women from Wales tended to go, and that was where you got very good cake. Because they they were such good cake makers. (laughs) At some point, it was decided that men couldn't be part of the camp. That was very early on. Well, what had happened was that that we were a bit woolly around the edges when it came to organising the march. We said, this is women. We didn't say it's women only. We said it's women-led. Women are going to make decisions. Women are going to be the spokespersons and do the talk, the speaking to the media or to anybody. But we're not going to ban men because we might have mothers who'd want to bring their teenage sons along for the day or brothers or male children, at what point do you say a boy is a man? You know, at what point do you cut off? So we said, we're not going to ban men as such, but we're going to say it's women-led. Women-led and women to the front. You know, men have made all these decisions about military and nuclear whatnot, and this opposition is going to be led by women. A couple of young, young men, they heard us when we left Cardiff, and they said, oh, wow, this is great. Can we come along with you? We'll look after the kids when you have your meetings and so on. I said, yeah, OK. So they came along and they looked after the kids. And then they were joined by two more. And they they did actually play a very useful role in childcare. When we got to Greenham, they stayed on. But they tended to attract other young men from the town who would sort of they were kind of sitting around strumming guitars and singing their peace songs and all the rest of it. But they'd all become very lazy with, with regards to running cap. <laughs> Nobody did any washing up. 
<laughs> which was quite laborious. But you know, you had if you were living there, you had to do these things and keep the space reasonably clean and pick up litter and so on. And they they sort of became rather slobby and didn't do any of that. So the women decided to ask them to leave. I mean, there were groups of guys who who supported in all kinds of constructive ways, like bringing wood for the fire and so on. So it became a woman's camp yeah, with tens of thousands of women living together. Not all the time. Not all the time, no. No. Varying size population. Varying numbers, yeah. In your book, you write that at some point you turned your attention to Russia. Mm. And I'd love to hear about what you were thinking and what happened. Well, it just occurred to me that women had gone to demonstrate in America. And then one day, 1982, at some point, it, it was a thought that just came to me out of the blue. We should go to Russia. We should go to Russia. And I said to Carmen, we should go to Russia. And she said, that's exactly what I've been thinking. So as it was in both our heads, we thought, well, yes, this has to happen. So where? Where do we begin? This wasn't Russia. This was the USSR. We talked to a lot of Russian correspondents and so on. But then we heard there were little, very underground groups of people, that there was a group that had just started calling themselves the Moscow Group for Trust. Their proposal was for dialogue, for a four-way dialogue between the leaders of East and West, between the leaders of the USSR and the leaders of America, between the people of East and West, meeting and talking. Wow, what a good idea. So we, we got in touch with an American woman called Jean McCollister, who was a fluent a Rhodes Scholar. I didn't know what that meant at the time. It means you're the creme de la creme of American universities. <laughs> you're very clever. Anyway, Jean was Rhodes Scholar. She was fluent Russian speaker, very, very knowledgeable about the USSR. I managed to get in touch with Jean. She'd been to Moscow. We organised Carmen, myself and Jean to go to Moscow meet the trust group. Of course, we couldn't phone them up. We couldn't write to them. We couldn't contact them in advance to say we were coming. We had no idea what we'd find. You have to understand what a totalitarian state actually is like, how it operates, how it works. Moscow Group of Trust, they'd made their existence open. You know, they'd invited the media from Western correspondents and their own, like, Pravda, their own Soviet press correspondence, because they said nothing in our declaration is against the Soviet state. We're not criticising the Soviet state. We're not trying to be dissidents here. We're just looking at the problem of the arms race. But they were regarded as dissidents, of course. The Soviet state was run by the Communist Party, and the party had various committees, and one of the committees they had was called the Peace Committee. They would organise rallies, which were really demonstrations of patriotism. If you wanted to get on, you joined the party, and if you wanted to be noticed, you went along to these rallies. It was part of being patriotic. It wasn't anything to do with 
peace, particularly. But we arranged a meeting with the Peace Committee because we wanted to propose to them that we'd take a group of women over and do sort of spontaneous interviews in the street and that kind of thing, get a film company to to show this on British TV, and this would help to dismantle the kind of images people had of all Russian people wanting to kill us and all that kind of thing. That was our idea. So in order to do that, we had to organise it through official channels. Hence, we made arrangements to meet with the Peace Committee. Only the Moscow Group for Trust had been trying to meet with the Peace Committee and been met with complete silence and rebuffs and so on because they were unofficial. And so they asked us if we'd take one of them with us. So we agreed to take Olga Medvedkova into our prearranged meeting with the Peace Committee, which is not what they expect. So someone they regarded as an enemy of the state, more or less. Yes. The other um, irony, I suppose, is that they had delegations from Western peace movements going over all the time, and they just sort of exchange the usual kind of slogans and niceties, really. So they thought this was going to be a very boring, regular, normal kind of meeting. I remember being in our hotel room in Moscow, and Jean was talking in Russian to somebody, and then in English, and she said, oh, you can only spare us half an hour. Oh, that's a bit disappointing. And I remember sort of leaping across and grabbing the phone from her and shouting. The only time I've ever done this, shouting down the phone and saying, do you realise who we are? We are your heroines. We are your heroes. We are on your newsreels from Minsk to Vladivostok. We are in all your cinemas every night. We are green women. We are coming to see you and we want to discuss a lot of things with you. And we are going to need two hours at the very least. So we want to meet with your boss. And the guy said, oh, one moment, please. Then he comes back and says, okay, okay, you can meet as long as you like. <laughs> Peace Committee was actually run by a guy called, who was the deputy President Chair, Oleg Khahadin. And he was, as we would say, built like a British shithouse. He was, he was absolutely huge. Oh, incredible kind of military sort of intimidating. Apparently, he was a KGB big shot. It was an extraordinary meeting because once we had sort of sat down, we introduced ourselves and then Olga began to speak and said her name, and she was from Moscow Group for Trust, and she was speaking Russian, and Jean was translating for me, and she was saying, we've been trying to meet you many times to discuss our proposals, but she didn't go any further than that, because they all began, they all drowned her out, they all began drumming on the table, stamping with their feet, banging like this, They were smoking sort of banging boxes of matches on the table. They drowned her out with, with noise, which went on for a while. And I remember the interpreter next to me, I said to him, I want you to write down 
he had a little pad, you know, write down what she's saying. And he had a pencil in his hand and he was so nervous. He was scoring through the pad like this, through several thicknesses of paper. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. And, and then Hardin, kind of like a tank, he sort of, sort of rumbled into, into speech. And he said things like, like, we consider this an insult, that we have given you hospitality in our capital. And you have insulted our hospitality by bringing this representative of this tiny, insignificant group into our meeting to discuss your peace proposals, and whatever we have to say to Madame Medvedkova will not be at this table. It will be at another table, which is a clear threat to her and to us, really. I remember I replied and I, I said, you talk about hospitality. The only hospitality we've had in this capital is, is from these people. We haven't had hospitality from you. <laughs> and... We would have starved if it had been up to you. <laughs> Which was kind of true, because everywhere we went in our hotel and tried to eat, we more or less had to steal food in order to, in order to actually eat anything. It was a perennial problem, eating. What about grocery stores or restaurants? Grocery stores were full of enormous pyramids of tins of fish covered in dust. Restaurants... Yeah, there were restaurants where you stood up at zinc top tables and ate grey sausage. It was appalling, actually. The food was appalling. Yeah. You had to buy, if, if you had fresh food, like people in the trust group gave us fresh food, nice, you know, fresh tomatoes and spring onions and lettuce and so on. But you bought these things from peasants who sold them on the street. If you saw a queue, you joined it. And then you asked what it was for. We talked about our impressions of the USSR. We talked about a lot of the good things we'd seen. The, the public space, this idea of well-kept, well-maintained public spaces. And so that worked. And so we talked about all these good stuff that we'd seen, that we really appreciated and we could do with more of in the West. It was really quite an in-depth discussion. Kahadin had left by now. He left shortly after, obviously, to organise his thugs to put tails on us. <laughs> you imagine him saying, I want to know when these women fart. <laughs> he, he, he left and everybody's kind of shoulders dropped and they all said, it's okay, we all speak English. We, we just talked about our impressions of the country and we said, you know, take away the KGB, you know, take away the level of fear that people have. Did you talk about disarmament? Yeah. I think we said, look, you know, the trust group proposals are really very sensible. The way out is through dialogue rather than this escalation. It has to be through openness and dialogue. So really what we were talking about was the block on information, that there wasn't a free flow of information. So we talked about that. But afterwards, the, at the end of the meeting, I remember them shaking our hands. They didn't just shake our hands. They practically shook their arms off. You know? <laughs> they, said, they said, wow, that was, that, that was the most interesting meeting I've ever been in. I mean, it struck me reading it that just by being ordinary people speaking 
in ordinary ways, you cut through this deep paranoia and suspicion that is the sort of the dangerous psychology, not just in the room where you were, but in the arms race writ large. Yes. And that, of course, was the goal of the trust group and also the goal of the Greenham women, really. Yeah. So you went back west. What was the fallout from the meeting? The immediate fallout was that the next day when we went to get into our hotel room, there were two huge guys sitting on little kind of stools, like doorstops, either side of the door. They didn't smile, they didn't look at you, they were just there. So I remember leaving the door open and saying to them, well, you know, there's no point locking it, is there? (laughs) In a way, we knew we were immune because they had tied themselves in knots. Because Greenham was opposed to American cruise missiles, they really had given huge publicity to green women and where they could get footage of green women being sort of dragged off by police from these sit-down demonstrations and so on. They'd hone in on that to show how brutally uh, Western authorities were and how they were mistreating these poor women who were protesting against American missiles. So they, they, was, they were using it for their own propaganda. We were part of their propaganda. One of the things Kaharin said was, you come to this country and this is how you behave? And I said, well, what do you expect? We are green and women. You know how we get, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what do you expect? And what happened when you got back to England and the West? After several months, Olga was arrested. They obviously hesitated for a long time to know what to do with her. There were some newspaper articles about it and so on in this country. But then Olga was arrested, finally and threatened with imprisonment, put on trial, actually. And her trial kept being postponed because her trial in Moscow attracted well, the attention of all the correspondents because of this background story of what she was on trial for. They put on trial a trumped-up charge of assaulting a policeman. which It was a ridiculous charge. And they kept postponing the trial, postponing it, postponing it. And then eventually they sentenced her to two years' imprisonment, but they suspended it. So she didn't actually go to jail. That was such a relief. I thought, God, oh, God, are we going to have to go and mount a demonstration outside the Soviet prison camp somewhere? What would it be, labour camp? This was the danger, yes, that she would be sent to labour camp, yes. Yeah, where you don't necessarily survive. Other members of the trust group did get sent to labour camp. And then along came Gorbachev. In your book, you write about Gorbachev. To your mind, he was pivotal. Can you talk about your thoughts Mm. on him? When he came to power, and thank God they did make him the general secretary, when Gorbachev came to power in the USSR, he, he had already decided that he would make ending the arms race his priority. So he'd make de-escalation from the arms race his absolute priority. 
So he had to engage in dialogue with Reagan, which I think was difficult. Reagan was already starting to get dementia, in fact. They had a meeting in Reykjavik, I think, in Iceland. Before that, there had been a meeting between the two chief arms negotiators in Stockholm, the walk in the woods, and they had arrived at a process by which they could end the arms race. So then I thought, well, they had thought that. So the thought was sort of fair in a way. Gorbachev, I think, took the initiative to get out of the arms race. You say about Gorbachev, he was practical and he knew about seasons, growing, planting, harvesting, and how bureaucrats can really screw things up for farmers just trying to grow food. But what I think really made him different was that he talked to and listened to his wife, Raisa, who was mm -hmm. as clever as he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In his autobiography, he says that he and Raisa could trust each other to talk to each other, not inside their flat, outdoors, and not anybody else. So they each had each other to talk in confidence ideas which were which would have been described as anti-Soviet, which were dissident really, which were anti-Soviet. But but they had that they could talk together. I think he genuinely thought that the state was capable of reform that it could actually be reformed. I think he, he was naive, he was wrong in that. It was too rigid, he couldn't. The arms race was getting hysterical at this time, mm -hmm. did it not? Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. a little bit about the things that were happening with the cruise and Pershing missiles arriving in Greenland? Yeah, I mean, crews arrived, Pershing was stationed, everything was on track for limited nuclear war in Europe. I was no longer worried about it. I'd, I'd stopped worrying. Why? I'd stopped worrying the winter of 83, 84, when um, Olga wasn't jailed. It felt like somewhere, somewhere in the world, a tide had turned. That's what it felt like. Something's happened. Yeah, we're not going to have this nuclear war. Interesting. Gorbachev knew about the Peace Committee meeting. Tell me about that. He certainly knew about Moscow Trust Group because he could almost have been reading from their, their statement, you know, their declaration when he came to power. It was all about the need for dialogue. The British Communist Party delegation went over on their, you know, their normal visit to meet with, they usually met with the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party. They couldn't meet with the General Secretary, so they met with somebody they'd never heard of. Another member of the Politburo called Mikhail Gorbachev. They'd never heard of Gorbachev. But anyway, they met with Gorbachev, and they were surprised at how well-informed and relaxed and communicative and how sort of good to talk to he was, you know. They were surprised at this guy, Gorbachev. And he, it was the Gorbachev guy who, who said... Ah, you really must keep your cages under better control because a woman called Anne Petty came very badly in a peace committee meeting a while back. <laughs> That's funny. That's nice, isn't it? So when did the nuclear disarmament agreement... It just limited, it just sort of, you know, they just had to get rid of some of the nuclear weapons, some of the warheads. 
by now, I think they, they've got rid of quite a lot, but they're still a ridiculous quantity. I'm not sure who's got the most nuclear warheads, if, it, if it's Russia or America. It's close. The disarmament wasn't so much a disarmament as just a slight reduction. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah it, it was, yes. But in some ways, you could say it kind of changed the atmosphere. I, I think it made the idea of using nuclear weapons really quite unthinkable. So what happened to, how did the Greenham Peace Camp wind down then? Well, over many, many years, I think women stayed there for 20 years altogether. And what happened was that some of the women, like Sarah Hibberson, were there, you know, for a long, long time, left their lives behind them and became permanent peace camp residents. They turned their attention to the common itself And Sarah and a number of other local women put in an immense amount of work and looking into the bylaws by which Greenham Common had never been given back to the public and campaigning to get it restored as a a public open space, as a common. And they were successful. It was. Some of the fence is still there, but a lot of it's been taken down. So now it's just a, a lovely open space. People, you know, ride horses and walk their dogs and fly kites. It's wonderful for wildlife as well. It's got ponds and and there's a, one of the buildings, one of the control towers has been turned into a cafe. That's great. And what happened to the missiles? Went back to wherever missiles go back to. I mean, warheads are, they are active, you know, their nuclear radionuclides are decaying all the time. So they have to be kind of refurbished, I suppose. But they left the base at some point. They took them away. and Yeah. It, yeah. Is, is the silo still there? Yeah. Sort of disguised in greenery, but still there. Yeah. yeah. You do say, just returning to the fact that this began as a women's movement and a women's demonstration, right in your book you talk about that women were and are perhaps much more concerned than men about nuclear war. And Mm. you say, these facts are as true today as they were then. Years later, men make wars and women and children do the suffering and dying. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel that way? Yeah. 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 My God, look at Sudan. We're not exactly in an improved situation, are we? No. I mean... I can't be a pacifist because, you know, how can you, I mean, look at Israel and Palestine. How can you say to somebody living in Gaza or Ramallah or somewhere like that, you know, under Israeli occupation, how can you say, don't throw stones? How can you say, don't try to fight? You can't say that. Yeah. Do you still grow your own vegetables? God, yes. <laughs> talk about, you, you talk about the importance of growing your own vegetables. What is yeah. the importance of growing your own vegetables? <laughs> it's good for you. It's good for the earth. <laughs> it's good for everything. You feed your whole family with the vegetables that you grow? I can, I can smell onions frying as I'm speaking. <laughs> that wonderful smell. Mm. Yeah, you grow, you always get too much of some things. 
you put them out on the road for people to pick up and take away. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness.